everyone. Welcome back to Central American Voices. This is Susan Garcia. Hola, bienvenidos a Voces Centroamericanas. Mi nombre es Alejandra Quiroz. Le agradecemos por sintonizarnos una vez más. Today we'll be talking with Ramiro Sebastián Funes, who is the co-editor of Anticonquista. Thank you, Ramiro, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ramiro, for being with us today. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Um, as Susan mentioned, you are the co-editor of Anticonquista. So to start with, uh, what is Anticonquista and what topic does the platform focus on? So Anticonquista is an anti-imperialist media collective. Our content is produced by and for the Latin American and Caribbean diaspora. And we produce content that educates, organizes our people toward revolutionary socialist views. Unfortunately, so much of the space around leftism and socialism is dominated by people who are white, people who don't really have skin in the game in terms of colonization, slavery, oppression. And we created Anticonquista with the goal of introducing our people toward revolutionary socialist ideas, specifically in the diaspora. We know that in the diaspora, we are the sons and daughters of immigrants from our loved countries of Latin America and the Caribbean. Many of us, of our parents, were forced to leave because of imperialist wars, because of capitalist devastation. And so it's created a situation where we have over 60 million Latinos living in the diaspora. That's bigger than most countries in Latin America. Yet we are so divided by these bullshit boundaries of nationalism, mm. of, of nonsense, that we aren't even able to come together and understand that the same companies mm. that oppressed my family in Honduras, you know, United Fruit, uh, Dole, these mm -hmm. are the same companies that were carrying out coups in Ecuador and mm -hmm. Panama. And it's all connected. And that's basically what we're about with Anticonquista is agitating, organizing our Latin American and Caribbean diaspora to mm -hmm. open to socialist ideas, to build, to work together. And also part of the work that we do is media uh, agitation propaganda. But another component of that is raising funds for revolutionary groups in the global south. Uh, we've mm -hmm. only been around for about three years now, and we've already raised oh, thousands wow. of dollars for revolutionary groups in several countries. Um, so that's sort of the work that we do is theory and practice. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, as I mentioned to Ramiro before we started um, recording is that Anticonquista is a resource that I only discovered in the past year, but it's been so informative. And again, kind of it's challenged a lot of like the thinking that I feel like a lot of us, you know, being in the diaspora in like the U.S. or Canada, you know, challenges kind of the propaganda that kind of we're fed, you know, um, and challenges these notions of, you know, these bullshit concepts and boundaries as Ramiro said so before I know Ramiro you're going to talk a lot about you know imperialism in Central America how that affects us um you know a lot of heavy topics but before we get there um I'd love to hear more about you know your background um you know growing up here and how you know how your experiences has led you to become like part of Anticonquista for sure so um I was born and raised in New York I was born in Harlem and I was raised in Queens, near Jamaica, New York, Queens, Southside. And uh, I grew up, you know, my parents are from Honduras. Uh, my my mom is from San Pedro Sula or Puerto Cortes in the north. My dad is from Choluteca, which borders Nicaragua. 
which may, will go into connects with what we're talking about today, which is imperialism mm -hmm. in, in Central America with the Contras and, and, and Nicaragua. Um, yeah, and so mm -hmm. my so my family moved in 1991, the year I was born. I was born and raised in New York, and I went to school there. I went to St. John's. I was part of a Latino frat, Field mm -hmm. Alpha. Uh, that was that was when I was really into my respectability politics era. I was yeah. dressing up in suits and talking about how us Latinos <laughs> got to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we get a seat at the table. Like we all go <laughs> yeah. through that phase, most yeah. definitely. And, uh, and that, you know, that phase, I, I quickly grew out of that. Um, mm -hmm. Once I was exposed to socialist and communist ideas, reading, seeing the coup in Honduras in 2009 was an eye opener for me. The removal yeah. of Manuel Zelaya. And then later I mm -hmm. got involved with Occupy Wall Street. Uh, later, I got involved with anti-imperialist work in New York. Uh, in 2015, I moved to L.A., and I also briefly lived in Ecuador. Uh, I used to work for Telesur English. I was an editor there a few years oh, back. Right. I left, um, and actually, me and a few other people who used to work at Telesur English, we actually started Anticonquista in Ecuador, in Quito. Mm -hmm. And it was a culmination of, of uh, four of us from different backgrounds who had the same vision of creating a revolutionary communist media outlet for our people. Mm -hmm. And since then, basically, I've just been putting in work for Anticonquista. I've been, we do it, you know, it's, we're not an NGO. We're not a, a, a nonprofit or a business or corporate media. Mm -hmm. we, we do it a hundred percent volunteer basis. And, right. and it's part of the work that we do. And so, um, that's kind of my upbringing. It's just being around my, my family is very right wing. Unfortunately, I'm the mm -hmm. only, communists in my family you're not um, the only <laughs> yeah <laughs> there, there's, i'm sure a lot of us most of us are probably like that but um you know it takes one right and it's like it takes one in the family to to start it off and and that's pretty much it. i've also been involved with um the partido libre from honduras um the frente yeah. nacional de resistencia popular uh, i'm active with the diaspora departamento 19 which is the 19th department for hondureños in el exterior organizing against the right-wing fascist government, the National Party government. Uh, so I've been involved with that as well. I've been part of delegations, caravans to Mexico, to the border, to help out our migrant sisters and brothers who are literally dying there as we speak, unfortunately. And uh, mm -hmm. I've also traveled to Bangladesh to represent the uh, Honduran um, diaspora and a socialist conference there. Mm -hmm. So I've been kind of a, involved in a few things. Mainly, my line yeah. of work has mainly been in anti-imperialist activism and politics. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Thank you. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> that, that is really a lot. And really, thank you because I, you know, like you said, I feel like um, the coup so el golpe de estado it, it was an eyes opening for you it it was honestly that one point for me that was like okay i kind of need to get more like not only involved but get more educated what's actually happening in my country which i was in honduras when that happened so thank you for everything and of course all the work that you do across you know from ecuador to going to uh Bangladesh to here and i think it's very um important to have you know people like you who go and have this you know topic that a lot of people might not agree with and other people might not want to recognize um so to jump into the topic um 
I like I said, you know, many people don't want to agree. Many people don't want to accept it, or or on or many others don't want to even don't know the actual definition. So if you can give us a little bit of introduction of uh, imperialism in Central America for those who not be might not be familiar with the term. For sure. Um, so first and foremost, let's talk about where the term comes from, who its proponent was, who theorized about it. And from there, we really have to start off with uh, Vladimir Lenin, who was a Russian revolutionary who lived at the time in the Russian Empire under the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas II, which was a monarchy and a feudal monarchy that was backward, that repressed workers, repressed national minorities. And at that time period, Lenin described the Russian Empire as a prison house of nations. What does that mean? That means that Russia is a geographic land with several nations included in it that are oppressed, oppressed minorities. This included uh, the Jewish nation. This included uh, Georgians. Uh, this included Armenians, Ukrainians, Poles, mm-hmm. Finns, Estonians, Latvians. We can go on and on. And mm-hmm. part of the tradition of socialism up to Lenin's point had focused solely on workers versus bosses, workers of the world unite. That was Marx's famous line, last line in the Communist Manifesto, workers of the world unite, which Lenin agreed, yes, that is correct. We must unite on a class basis as workers, as people who are exploited for our wealth and labor and resources. Now, one of the dynamic things that Lenin added to that analysis is incorporating the concept of national oppression. Now, Marx and Engels were writing from Germany, and a lot of the socialist theorists of that time were writing from England. And so their experiences in terms of nationalism and oppression and racism were vastly different from what Lenin and Stalin and and others experienced at the time, because Russia was seen as backward. It was backward. Uh, uh, Russia was oppressed by Western Europe. And so... Lenin was able to synthesize this idea of combining workers' liberation, combining the emancipation of oppressed people with the emancipation of oppressed nationalities. And and look at what's happening at this time, right? We're talking about the early 1900s. We're talking about the height of the British Empire, when Britain is literally colonizing parts of Chile, Peru, Bolivia, stealing access uh, resources in that region, like nitrates, carving out their spheres of control. In Nicaragua, you had them controlling the Mosquito Coast, which the imperialists still use today against the mm-hmm. Sandinista Revolution, which maybe we can talk about a little later on. Uh, they also carved out their corner of Belize, which is British Honduras. And so the British were basically dividing up the world. And you also have, of course, the Middle East. You have the Sykes-Picot Treaty, which allowed the British to basically carve out the Middle East and create these artificial nations known as Syria, Iraq, and Jordan, which didn't exist prior. Same thing in South Asia, right, with India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. The British were going around the world, creating divisions, creating artificial lines, because they understood that by creating these colonial boundaries, they were better able to manipulate nations, play them against each other, control them, dominate their banks, dominate their media. And this is what led to the formation of imperialism in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. In the late 1800s, 
this baton in the Western Hemisphere was passed on to the United States from Spain. We have the 1898 Treaty of Paris between Spain and the U.S. after the Spanish-American War that basically cedes all of Spain's uh, conquest over places like Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Philippines, Guam, over to the United States. And so Spain basically left the region and the, the, the baton was passed over to the U.S. imperialists. And this is, of course, a few decades after the U.S. imperialists were able to colonize the South, what is today the Southwest, where, is, where I'm speaking from you today. And so imperialism really began developing around this time, the late 1800s, early 1900s. And Lenin was saying, look, we can't advocate for socialism. We can't begin to um, uh, begin destroying capitalism without addressing this phenomenon, which is imperialism. And imperialism is a system. It's not a policy. It's not when, you know, one country trades mm -hmm. with another country. It's, it's, a, it's a policy and system where monopoly capitalism is the, the preeminent stage of society where you have a few banks uh, and insurance companies and multinational corporations based in London, New York, and other cities that dominate world trade that purposefully uh, hold back the progress of developing nations, even if countries that are not necessarily socialist, like Iran, for example, that is a Islamic Shia Islamic country, the imperialists are still trying to tear down its national development because it's creating an independent economy away from Wall Street and Washington. And so that's really what imperialism is. It's the highest stage of capitalism. It's the monopoly stage of capitalism that's defined by nonstop wars, by coups, and by financial control over the global economy. And those are the roots of imperialism worldwide. Um, I don't know if you want me to specifically now go into Central America, but I thought I would just kind of give you that rough definition of imperialism uh, mm -hmm. because I think it's important because I think on the one hand, I think it's good. A lot of young Latinos are beginning to learn about imperialism and what it is. On the other hand, unfortunately, I think a lot of people misuse the term or don't properly understand it, especially when they talk about you know, China and Africa or mm -hmm. Russia or and I and I think they're not really grasping the economic roots of imperialism. And so I just kind of wanted to lay that foundation before we go specifically into uh, Central America. No, thank you. I think it's very helpful, um, especially I think, you know, in the past like two months with like the raising awareness, you know, with, um, you know, more like socialism and like even communism becoming a little bit more acceptable in mainstream discourse. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, have like jumped, you know, all despite like intentions and eagerness. And that's something that I think even I have been guilty of, you know, like jumping into it, but not properly like knowing the foundations or like knowing the introductory, introductory information. So thank you for that. And also, um, I just want to point out that it's, I also appreciate it because I think that the word like socialism and communism, again, for a lot of us raised here in the diaspora in the West, it's been, you know, a, a dirty word or a dirty notion. And I think this type of introduction and conversations, you know, kind of help dismantle that stigma that has been created. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, feel free to go on with um to talk oh. about imperialism in Central America. Right. So going into the specifics about Central America. So Central America is interesting because we've 
experience as Central American people, we were, of course, one of the first people who experienced imperialism, given our proximity to the biggest imperialist power in the world right now, which is the United States. Mm-hmm. We were a laboratory of experiment for imperialism. Uh, even before its huge rise in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, uh, I'll give you one example, mm-hmm. is in the 1820s and after the uh, separation from the liberation from Spain uh, for about a year or two, Central America was under the dominion of the Mexican Empire uh, for about two years. And then afterward, Francisco Morazán and Arce in El Salvador, what is today El Salvador, um, formed the Central American Federation, which is composed of Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica. And the idea was to create a federation of republics similar to what was going on in South America with Simón Bolívar, with La Gran Colombia, which included Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, and then Panama. And create a federation of, of liberal republics that would have an independent economy because in the 1800s, you know, you had the the Spanish who were losing power, the British who were beginning to lose power in that region. And so Francisco Morazán was like, look, we need to come together unless otherwise we're going to be balkanized into these tiny little republics, which unfortunately is what ended up happening. And they created the Central American Federation. Now, interestingly enough, Toward the a few years after that, after the creation of the Central American Federation, there was a lot of challenges, mainly from a lot of industrialists in the United States, especially mm-hmm. from the Confederacy in the South. You had uh, efforts by uh, the right wingers in the United States, the the uh, especially the Confederates at the time in the United States, who were supporting the national parties, which today in in Central America manifest themselves in the Partido Nacional in Honduras, the ARENA party in El Salvador, which is the National Republican Alliance, and and other conservative parties, and also in Costa Rica, who were like, no, let's fragment these country, this federation into smaller countries, and, and they'll be easier to control. And that's exactly, you know, that method, that method of dividing up a region, carving up a region into these smaller pieces, creating separate economies that are not trading with each other, but are dependent on the U.S. for trade, that mm-hmm. is where imperialism really developed. And so into the 15, 1850s, we saw that in, 18, I believe, 1855 or 1856 with the rise of William Walker from Tennessee, some random white guy who just decided to up and take a boat from New Orleans to Nicaragua, declared himself president, and wanted to create a giant slave plantation across Central America, beginning with Nicaragua. And he saw the potential of Nicaragua because it had access to both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And they, he, even before, you know, there, there's the, the liberal imperialists always like to talk about the canal and, and try to use that as a justification for overthrowing uh, the Sandinista government. The canal has been talked about since the 1850s by by white people in the United States who wanted to control that canal. Um, and instead, they were not able to say instead they went to Panama, uh, which is why Panama was broken off from La Gran Colombia. But that region, Central America, is very strategic. You can cut off the and Morazan wanted to create Central America as a naval power because it had access to both oceans. It had the thinnest, you know, um, coastline to coastline distance. And in the middle of the 1850s, you also had the rise of the California gold rush, 
where you also had all these white settlers moving into the West Coast, trying to extract gold and resources from indigenous lands, from Mexican lands. And so controlling Central America, creating that canal was pivotal. Instead of having to build railroad lines all the way to California, they could just take ships easily and, and, and go down to Nicaragua, across the canal, go back up to California. And so controlling Central America for the imperialists has always been very important because of its geopolitical significance. And so ultimately in the 1850s, you know, William Walker was assassinated by Florencio Satruch. I actually have a, a tattoo of him on my on my chest. It says Satrucho because uh, Satruch. And yeah, because like in Honduras, they call, you know, they will be like, oh, Catrachos, right? We, we uh-huh. call Catrachos. Yeah. And so that term. What's up? It's because of him? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because Florencio Satruch um, was a Honduran general who led an expeditionary force that went and assassinated. They killed William Walker. He died in Trujillo, Honduras. He was assassinated, mm-hmm. William Walker. Um, you know, so he was, in a sense, like one of the early anti-imperialist heroes, even before Sandino and Farondo Martí, where he killed uh, William Walker, who was taking over Central America and the Nicaragüenses from that day on were like, okay, the Hondurans are called Satruchos because they couldn't Mm -hmm. pronounce his name. And so over time, it just became Catrachos. And so that's where the term Catracho comes from. And it has an anti-imperialist history and root to it. And so going into the late 1800s, the early 1900s, you have the rise of United Fruit Company, the Bananeros that along the coast of Honduras, especially in Tela, in Puerto mm-hmm. Cortes, where my family's from, in La Ceiba, and in Nicaragua, all, all along those regions who had the creation of the plantations and around the time period where the term Banana Republic became popular. Um, and at that point, the U.S. imperialists kind of shifted from more uh, giving up on this idea of geographically controlling Central America to economically and politically dominating it, you know, extracting coffee and uh, and fruit and bananas and sugar, which in the 1800s were in some cases even more valuable than gold. Um, the sugar trade in the 1800s was like one of the most uh, valuable, including in the Caribbean. And so our lands were extracted, pillaged resource and, and their resources stolen for that reason. And Going into the early 1900s, you know, you have resistance to it. You have people who are fed up with it, people who have had enough. And one of the main figures who I think, unfortunately, gets almost no credit in the left in general um, is Faraundo Martí from El Salvador, who was the, the founder of the Central American Communist Party, one of the first communist parties in the world in the 1920s, literally just a few years after the Russian Revolution, you have Farondo Martí um, being in contact not only with Sandino in Nicaragua, who ha- whose political views were a little different. Um, he diverged. Uh, I would say Sandino was more of an anarcho-syndicalist, more of a also um, nationalist and, and as opposed to an internationalist. Um, but Farondo Martí you know, was organizing the first communist party of Central Americans in the 1920s before mm-hmm. most of the world had even done so. And 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 you also had in 1932, I believe, La Matanza, where you have these indigenous communists who are uprising in El Salvador and they were suppressed by a, a right-wing military dictatorship. 
so there's such a beautiful history of of revolutionary struggle in Central America that that often gets overlooked. And part of that struggle um, is not has not just been a worker versus boss struggle, but it's also been a national liberation struggle, an indigenous struggle, because mm. the people who were most affected were indigenous people on the coast of in the case of Honduras, the Garifuna people who whose lands were used for the bananeros and in the 1930s you know um sandino as well uh in nicaragua was fighting against the somoza the early formations of the somoza dynasty dictate u.s backed dictatorship which actually it was propped up by fdr you know a lot of the liberals in the mm-hmm. u.s like to tell fdr is like some great progressive and the, the new deal and all that shit and it's like okay well all of but. that was based on the exploitation of oppressed people in the global south. He supported Somoza. And there's actually a famous quote. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse, by the way. I'm sorry if I dropped the F-bomb. No, no it's okay. Don't worry. Uh, okay. Cool, cool. <laughs> How dare you? No. <laughs> um, so Somoza was like, yeah, I mean, uh, FDR was like, you know, Somoza may be a, a son of a B. I'm not going to say the word because it's also uh, disrespectful to women. But he was like, Somoza may be a son of a B, but he's our son of a B. And, you know, that's it's so emblematic of the way that liberals in the U.S. are able Mm -hmm. to compromise with imperialism as long as they get what they want, you know, as long as they get their social programs. But if that's built off the backs of oppressed people in the global south and whatever, who cares? Right. And so and in general, you know, um, that's sort of like the the underlying situation of imperialism in Central America. You have the banana uh, plantations, the. Uh, the palm oil, the rising palm oil industry, you have uh, just labor. Um, and then going into the 40s and 50s, in, in the 1950s, um, you know, there was a lot of develop, important developments because, um, you know, this is after World War II. There's a good author I recommend everybody read if you want a uh, mm-hmm. Central American communist perspective of of our history is Ramon Amaya Amador, who was a Honduran uh, novelist. He was a communist. He traveled all over the Soviet Union, all over the world. And he wrote several books. One of his most famous books is Prisión Verde, which mm-hmm. talks about what conditions were like in the United Fruit Company plantations in Honduras. And he goes over like the horrible conditions and how people organized. And actually in 1954, um, there, there was the coup against Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala uh, called mm-hmm. Operation PB Success. And this is around the same time period that you have uh, Jorge Gaitan in Colombia, who was also a liberal, not, not revolutionary, talking about very simple stuff. Let's bring in a minimum wage. Let's bring in the eight-hour workday, basic rights for people. Because remember, mm-hmm. up to that point, it, there was nothing, right? Everything was suppressed. People working seven days a week, 15 hours a day you know, cortando cocos y bananas. And, you know, it's horrible. It's it's disgusting. And right. the reforms he was talking about, uh, Jaco Arbenz, were very simple, you know, very, it wasn't anything crazy. And yet, you know, he was, uh, and he was also allying with communist groups at the time. Uh, interestingly enough, Che Guevara was in Guatemala at that time in 1953, 1954. And Guatemala was one of the places where he was actually radicalized, uh, Che Guevara. Along with Peru, he was, you know, visiting the leper colony in Peru. Um, he was also in Guatemala and he saw the, the combination of national oppression, the oppression of, especially in somewhere like Guatemala, which is majority indigenous. Um, mm-hmm. And he combined the oppression, national liberation with the worker versus boss relationship. And so... 
Jaco Orbenz was ultimately removed in a in a U.S. backed orchestrated coup, and that was also a simultaneous with the biggest uh, May Day strike in Honduras in 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 on May Day, uh, 1954, 1956. I have to double check, but you know this is all going on along the same time period. Che Guevara leaves Guatemala. He goes to Mexico. Um, two years later, they start you know the Cuban Revolution, 1956, uh, and so. Central America was central to Che Guevara's political formation, his political rising. And this is something that often, again, gets overlooked, right, historically. Um, and so into the, the 1950s and 60s, um, you have the rise of the guerrilla movements. You have, especially in Guatemala in the 60s, you have the rise of Mayan indigenous groups who, you know, had enough of the bullshit, had enough of the, contr- the imperialist control. And decided to launch an armed struggle similar to the way in which in Colombia at the same time as well, the FARC um, and the ELN, be their guerrilla warfare campaigns uh, in El Salvador as well and Honduras as well. I think more successfully in El Salvador and Nicaragua, uh, given their relative, uh, you know, specific conditions. I think the conditions were different in Guatemala and Honduras. Unfortunately, that uh, prevented uh, a less successful uh, guerrilla movement compared to El Salvador and Nicaragua. And, you know, at that time period, this is, we're talking about now going into the Cold War, um, you have the U.S. trying to do everything it can to stop the Soviet Union, to prevent the Cuban Revolution from spreading across the hemisphere, because they knew that they saw Latin America as their backyard, and they knew that if Latin America and Central America specifically fell to, quote-unquote, fell to communism then their empire would be fucked and so they did everything they can to suppress the revolutionary movements in central america they supported in a Salvador the arena party the right wing basically fascist party uh that that suppressed so many working class people they in honduras they um basically supported the right wing governments are there cracked down on all of the guerrilla movements as well uh, in Nicaragua, they propped up the Somoza dictatorship, which unfortunately was successful in their defeat of uh, uh, Sandino. And into the 70s and the 80s is really when in Central America you have real resistance to imperialism. You have, you know, Cuba and, and Grenada as examples of, of revolutionary people standing up, fighting back against the empire, wanting to create independent economies do their own thing. Uh, you have in Nicaragua the the Sandinistas, which were founded in Honduras, but were obviously working clandestinely um, to organize the people in Nicaragua. They were working a lot with churches, with community groups to organize the Sandinista base. Uh, in El Salvador as well, you have the rise of the FMLN a little later than Nicaragua. And there was a moment in the early 80s where, you know, if you look at Mag- Time Magazine, covers of the early 80s it's like you know it'll be pictures of central america and it'll say like communism at america's doorstep you know and and there was a real fear that the central american communists would reignite that vision of the central american federation we spoke earlier about um but something similar to like a soviet union a a union of socialist republics Uh, and that was ultimately the goal that the brilliant revolutionaries uh in the sandinista revolution Carlos Fonseca, you know, um, uh, 
uh, and others, you know, in, in Nicaragua had as well as in El Salvador, Cayetano Carpio, the, the founder of, of the Fuerzas Populares de Revolución, they were serious communists who were a threat. They were they were ready and prepared to take down U.S. Marines. You know, they were not playing games. And 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 the, they were perhaps some of the most organized militant communists at the time fighting back against the U.S. imperialists. And uh, unfortunately, you know, into the, the 80s, um, maybe we can transition here a little bit into what I view as the new era of imperialism, um, mm-hmm. where new new tactics and methods are used, um, you know, in the early 80s after the Sandinista victory, after the FMLN is is getting so much popularity because they switched it, right? They The imperialists were like, look, if we want to keep control of their their economies, their countries, we need to switch up our tactics because clearly this method that that we've been using is not working, right? Because, um, and I think the last example of that kind of over like rough-handed imperialism is like Pinochet in Chile in 1973. Uh, it was a disaster, you know, thousands right. of people were killed, um, you know, and, and it was obvious and that only fueled, that only pushed more people more toward toward socialism and communism. Because they were like, look what happens when, you know, when when you put in these right wing fascist dictators like that. Um, and so they switched it up. And so now I think this is the beginning of what what I like to call like neoliberal imperialism or like hipster imperialism, where instead of attacking genuine anti-imperialists and communists from the right, instead of putting in people like, you know, Maximiliano Hernandez or Pinochet or like, you know, these kind of people they're they're propping up pro-democracy protesters right and we're seeing that even today we're seeing that happening in belarus we see that uh happening um you know, that that's the same lie that they used in syria with the so-called uh, arab spring against assad uh we saw that happen in venezuela against president maduro and the bolivarian revolution we saw that happening in nicaragua uh, as well, you know, a few years back with these quote unquote pro-democracy protests, U.S. funded pro-democracy protests. And that's been the new strategy. And unfortunately, it's been very successful for the imperialists because now they're able to rebrand imperialism as spreading democracy. Right. And spreading democracy just means the same thing. It's the same thing. Private, you know, denationalizing opening up their markets to U.S. commodities and products, making them subjugated to their food imports. So instead of developing um, one of the big issues in, in Central America now that pains me, it, it destroys me to see this, is the, the lack of food sovereignty, right? You have all these multinational companies, McDonald's, like all these random ass restaurants that like nobody gives a fuck about in the U.S., Chili's, Arby's mm-hmm. that are like propping up over there. And, and, and they're branding it. They have commercials. So they're creating this artificial need, demand among people to be like, oh, you know, let's go to Chili's and be American and listen to the Smiths. And, you know, and it's like, like I was in Honduras, uh, like, like last year and I saw that. And then like, you see the ladies who are selling tortillas and frijoles and queso that are like going out of business, you know, by these giant multinational companies. And that's what they want. You know, that's what these, um, imperialists want is to basically dump their, their hand-me-down commodities onto our people that are literally poisoned, by the way, in terms of food um, and and subject us to that. And so, you know, you have the rebranding of imperialism 
with these pro-democracy protesters specifically, um, you know, and going in a little further into like the modern era in terms of imperialism in Central America, uh, you have in Nicaragua, the, you know, Daniel Ortega becomes reelected, becomes president. Um, and I have, you know, I, me personally, I have some disagreements with, with Ortega. I, I'm an atheist, first of all, I'm, I'm not a Christian, you know, I don't believe that the state should control women's right to abortion. I believe women should have the right to abortion. I don't believe in religion. Um, you know, I'm a dialectical materialist. I'm not a Christian. Um, I disagree with him on that. I disagree with him on, you know, trading with uh, Taiwan and, and, and certain other things, you know, but for the most part, for the most part, um, I think that what we see in Nicaragua is way better than what we see in, in my country of Honduras, where it's basically hostage to U.S. imperialism. There's huge poverty, huge homicide rate, huge problems that are created by imperialism that you don't see as much in Nicaragua. And in going into, you know, the, the 2010s, 2012, 2014, you had the revival of U.S. interest in controlling uh, the the trade route between the Atlantic and Pacific. And why is that? Because of China, because the U.S. sees China as uh, a, a global competitor. Um, you know, Nicaragua and China were trading on win-win cooperation, wanting to build a canal. Um, and uh, there's also a lot of misinformation about, you know, and here's where the, this whole angle of liberal hipster imperialism comes in, where now mm. the new threat is, well, oh, you know, they're going to destroy the environment, even though there had been numerous reports done by Nicaraguan scientists, Chinese scientists, scientists even from the United States who are saying that their proposed canal is, um, you know, is in accordance with preser preserving the environment. You still had the U.S. National Endowment for Democracy, you know, hire a bunch of um, people to act like, oh, they're going to destroy this or that. And they're going to and 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 so now they're forcing countries like Nicaragua that are anti-imperialist, that are moving away from the U.S., from Wall Street. Um, they're forcing them back in and trying to destabilize them by using, you know, pro-democracy protesters, environmental protesters um, as props in their war against any country that's exercising sovereignty. And so that's, you know, that's more modern. That's more recent. And I. Uh, you know, I don't know if you have any comments or questions, but I, I thought, you know, that's like a general overview of how imperialism has affected our people. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, you gave us a really good history lesson. Um, a lot of the things, you know, like, I feel like you're able to tie a lot of kind of major events that I was aware of, you know, about like Central America and Latin America um, and gen like the historical narrative was very helpful for me. Um, and also just very inspiring to listen about, because as you said, I feel like, you know, revolutionary history isn't really talked about much. And I think obviously that's done on purpose. Right. Um, but in terms of, you know, both like historical and like modern, like, I guess, imperialism in Central America and Latin America, I want to like if do you have any recommendations for like readings or movies of course like i know like you possibly can't think of it everything right now but any like resources that would be really helpful for people that want to learn more about this oh yeah definitely there's a great book by uh walter lefebvre 
mm-hmm. unfortunately another white man <laughs> but um you know that's the reality of unfortunately you know it's like and that and that's kind of the work that we're trying to do is like we're trying to be our own historians for our own people we got to speak for ourselves but we got to work also work with what exists at the moment um and so walter lefebvre has a good book called inevitable revolutions the united states and central america i highly recommend it it goes over a lot of this history from the 1800s to the present my own personal notes (laughs) it's a great book um i also recommend um I, I I feel like the thing that I recommend the most is going on YouTube and listening to revolutionaries from Central America themselves and hearing them in Spanish because I think their analysis is like so on point. You know, you listen to Cayetano Carpio or listen to others and um, they talk about like U.S. imperialism, what it does. And it's such a, a warning to to what we should be looking out for today. Um. Mm-hmm. And I think that what else in terms of resources, I definitely, definitely suggest uh, Alliance for Global Justice. They have a really good uh, Mm. series of works on Nicaragua specifically. Um, I think so much attention now is focused on Nicaragua because they are uh, in Central America, at least the only country that has moved away that is. um, moved away from the sphere of U.S. imperialism, unfortunately. Uh, the FMLN, when they were elected in Salvador, with first with Mauricio Funes, uh, no relation, by the way, we have the same last name, but no relation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later, uh, Salvador Sanchez Seren, who was an OG, who was a guerrero himself. Um, but unfortunately, they were, they were not able to, I was very disappointed with um, their results and time in office. Obviously, part of that is constraints. You don't get a magic wand once you come into power. That's something that a lot of people also need to keep in mind that you don't get a magic wand. You have to work with years of war, years of devastation uh, to rebuild your country. And sometimes that means doing stuff that isn't necessarily quote unquote socialist or communist. Um, And so I think I would suggest looking at Alliance for Global Justice to see uh, their coverage of Nicaragua. uh, And and even just talking to elders, like even out here in LA, and in New York as well, Long Island, like there's OGs from, you know, who were in the struggle themselves in El Salvador who can tell you their trajectory. And a lot of them are still like the base, the popular base of the FMLN uh, that also have criticisms of the FMLN governments mm-hmm. uh, from, a, you know, a communist perspective. I think those are the, some of the best sources. Right. Um, thank you for that. And also just one thing. So just transparently. Um, I I think a lot of my familiarity and like with a lot of other people's familiarity um, is with, you know, SOS Nicaragua. And right now you talked about, you know, how a lot of these pro-democracy um, protesters are, you're saying they're U.S. funded, like they serve U.S. interests. Um, and it's, it's definitely pushing my point of view. Um, but I think like the importance is like being open to like, being challenged so like thank you for like suggesting these resources so that we can look into it more um but if you could i think something that's really hard right now and if you have any insight would be really appreciated is that um there's a lot of like activists in the u.s like nicaraguan activists who you know are going for sos nicaragua and have like said you know there's a lot of repression and i get the point though what you're saying that like you know they're doing better than like what's happening in Honduras, right? Like we shouldn't 
villainize Nicaragua like just because you know it's like socialist or whatever when like we see like other countries that are aligned with like imperialist countries and like they're doing worse actually um but if what would you say to I guess listeners right that like as far as and for me like a lot of my knowledge is like what I've heard from SOS Nicaragua and those activists Mm -hmm. um like what are things that we should keep in mind that like would help us see more of what you're saying I would say, first of all, follow the money. The money never lies, right? The money never lies. Follow the money. Who's funding these protests? Who's supporting them? Who's speaking positively about them? If you look at most coverage about, quote-unquote, SOS Nicaragua, the, quote-unquote, pro-democracy protests in Nicaragua, they're getting really glamorous coverage in the mainstream media. You have all these reports coming out, Time Magazine, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times. And who are the enemy? Who are the good guys in their narrative, the protesters? And who are the bad guys in their narrative, the Sandinista government? Now, that should tell us a little something about the class nature of these protests. You know, and, and that's not to say that there are genuine concerns. Of course, Nicaragua is not perfect. There's so many things that need to get improved. But every time we've seen this drumming up of war, of of nonsense by mainstream media it's always ended up horribly look at what happened in libya right 2011 you had Mm -hmm. Muammar gaddafi who was trying to again not perfect you know he had some views that i disagree with but at the time libya had the highest life expectancy rate on the african continent he was talking about creating a gold-backed currency called the dinar that would uh increase trade within africa and build up the african infrastructure and resources to make them less dependent on the West. And you had mainstream media who were like, SOS Libya, we need to go in and save them. And and these here are these pro-democracy protesters um, who want to like liberate. Look at Libya now. It's a complete mess. You know, Gaddafi was literally uh, killed. I don't even want to go into the details about how horrible that was. Um, but he was, you know, <laughs> murdered on the streets right after there was the slave open slave markets of black Libyans who were traded and sold by these Wahhabi uh, fundamentalist right-wing, you know, uh, Muslims who don't represent the majority of Muslims, but are, you know, are the Saudi Arabian ISIS kind of uh, Wahhabi strand, you know, they took over. It's a complete mess now. The whole, the roads don't even work. Like, I don't even think you can get flights to Libya. It's one of the poorest countries in Africa again. Um, You know, the same thing with Yugoslavia. That, that happened in the 90s, right, with Milosevic. They were like, we need to go in and save them, save these pro-democracy protesters. They went in, they bombed the shit out of Yugoslavia. They b- created it into separate countries. They divided it. Now those are some of the poorest countries in Europe. Uh, and also, you know, the same thing in Ukraine in 2014 with the Euromaidan. You had these right-wing protesters who were branded as these hipsters and, like, carrying flowers like putting a flower on the the gun barrel of the soldier and like we're just these creative hipsters who are demanding democracy what happened after that you know the 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 president was removed again not perfect again not you know uh, in any way ideal um but you know he was removed and uh, literally a fascist government came in in Ukraine the first day after they took over the du- the duma um they hung a confederate flag they hung like a uh, a swastika in the in the parliament. Um, ethnic Russians were murdered in East Ukraine. 
you had fascists come to power in Ukraine. Um, and it's horrible, you know, and, and we've seen this over and over. What makes us think, what makes us think that it's going to be any better for Nicaragua, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and even, and even, and these quote unquote pro-democracy protesters, they're the same people who supported the Contras. There's the same people who supported Violeta Chamarro and Uno and the right wingers who destabilized, who brought crack into the United States, right? The, the Contras were hired by the DEA, by the U.S. government. You know, they worked right. with the Colombian drug cartels. They brought crack into Honduras, mm. where my family's from. The Contras were trained in my dad's hometown in Choloteca. Um, wow. And he saw it himself. You know, these Contras, they were horrible. They were fascist. They would beat up people who were leftists. If you supported mm. the Sinistas in any way, you were, you know, right. killed. They brought drugs into the hoods to destroy the Panthers, to destroy the Brown Braves, the Young Lords. These people are the the Nicaraguan opposition. They're the descendants of the Contras. They're totally connected. It's the same people. And even on the so-called, quote-unquote, left, like the Movimiento Regeneración Sandinista, which they mm. claim to be Sandinistas opposing Ortega, but conveniently their policy goals line up exactly with the State Department. And so mm. this is something that imperialism imperialism just like any system right everything in the world as communists we understand that the world is in constant flow the world is constantly changing and adapting capitalism is constantly changing and adapting and so is imperialism and so the the era of like you know the somosas and the pinochets is now the pro-democracy protesters and the hashtag sos insert country here you know, and mm-hmm. and I think we have to update our analysis of imperialism. And, and and that's really my message to a lot of our people, a lot of young Central Americans who are radical, who have excellent uh, views against like the U.S. police state, who are against the ICE facilities. I 100 percent support that. And I understand that. But what, but then you ask them about like Nicaragua and they're like, oh, um, you know, Daniel Ortega, he needs to go. We need to support these. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's just a total disconnect, you know? And and so that's something that I want to really like appeal to our people is like, keep in mind, like, don't be fooled by these people who are talking about pro-democracy protesters or this or that, because it's the same people who supported the Contras. It's the same people who supported William Walker. It's the same people who going back even further supported Spanish colonization. And so that's kind of like the way I view it. Okay. No, seriously, thank you for that. Because I think for me, it's like, it's something that I've started like to hear and like being pushed on. Um, And like, again, like in our diaspora, like we know each other and it's like, oh, but like this like SOS Nicaraguan activist is like, you know, like I trust this person. Like, again, as you said, like their ideals that like, I know that I'm like, for example, on like the US state, like I align with them. So I trust this analysis. Um, But like, I thank you for like pushing that Um, and like for explaining some of that and giving us the resources to continue to challenge ourselves on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, Thank you because sometimes, you know, like Susie says, sometimes we do and we only go and read and research one side, but sometimes we need to see it from both sides. You know, sometimes, let's say like if I don't agree with something, sometimes I need to go and research something else in order to see what is the point of view and and see okay one what is what what i'm actually supporting you know like i always say like we have to do a self-check you know and everything and you know i really appreciate um from everything you gave us like 
the history and a very specific and very understanding uh, definition of what is imperialism and what is um, the modern imperialism in in Central America. Um, so one of the, you know, maybe to close or um, as a last question that I wanted to ask you, um, I mean, you you technically touch on everything, to be honest, but I know um, uh, <laughs> um, how, like, if, for example, I, I said, like, in, in Central America, mm-hmm. um, point, like, talking from their point of, like, from point of view from Central America, why people sometimes are not aware of U.S. imperialism, how, like, they usually see or, like, imperialism as something, oh, they don't, well, no, it's not that they're not aware of the um, the actual like term, but that's gonna be one point. But other like um like you said, like they see they see it as the the better from when it comes to US imperialism rather than just the the other route. Yeah, I think um that's a good point. You know, I think that it's something that we have to battle with, right, in terms of the perception our people have about the United States, the wealth. And I think this is where it's so important to understand and to teach our people. And this is part of the work that we do as Anticonquistas to arm our people with the science of Marxism, the science of dialectical materialism. It's communism is not a, a, a religious belief set, a stale static set of beliefs. It's a science. And it's a science that we apply to understanding reality, understanding value what is value and even Karl Marx talks about this in capital and obviously our people know that there's a tremendous amount of value that is being held up in the United States you know you see the skyscrapers you see all these commodities and on the one hand I don't want to be that arrogant person who's like oh you know you shouldn't be uh too materialistic or too this because you know what at the end of the day our people are live in some of the most horrible conditions of poverty, hunger. I think our people deserve to have, you know, high speed internet, good clothes, like decent clothes, you know, a mm-hmm. place to live, a decent house, a car, just basic stuff. Mm-hmm. Everybody deserves that. Working class people deserve that. So on the one hand, yes, like I understand why they will look to somewhere like the United States and be like, I want to not only live there, but it's we should be like that. You know, my family is constantly telling me that. Like, cause I'm always like bringing up Honduras. I'm always active in like what's going on in Honduras. And they're like, ay, deja esa mierda. Like, me vale verga, you know, like who cares about, like, who cares about what's going on back there? Like what? we're here now, you know, focus on here. And it's like, well, no, because the wealth that is here is built on our exploitation. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the bananas and the coffee that the, the people, the white people in the boardrooms of Wall Street eat and drink every day as they plan to mm-hmm. dominate the world economy. Like that shit's from our countries, you know, the clothes that are on people's backs that are made in sweatshops that's made mm-hmm. in our countries, you know? And so the, the wealth, labor and resources that we see in the United States, that's all built on the exploitation of uh, third world colonized people, especially from Central America. And that's something that we really need to, even with our family members or relatives or friends mm-hmm. who have this like, idealized notion of the United States. Like, why can't we beat them? It's like, no, like you can't have, and this is where like Marxism and and dialectics come in. And it's like, you can't have wealth without poverty. You know, 
poverty mm-hmm. wealth is built on poverty it's it's a yep. relationship you know it's not like everyone in the world could be billionaires you know that that's not yep. physically possible and um and, and that's something that we have to teach our people is like like the reason there's skyscrapers in the u.s the reason why there's so many commodities and luxury goods here is because of the blood blood sweat and tears of our people back home and and we can build that but we have to move away from the u.s back system we have to you know shut down mcdonald's shut down burger king all this poison that they're feeding our people shut down the u.s military bases you know build national healthcare systems build women's collectives build collectives for black and indigenous people you know bring uh nationalize the means of production you know any th- things that are along the lines of socialist construction that we see happening in other places you know in cuba and venezuela um and and so that's something that we really have to keep in mind is like you know when people have look at the united states like a it's not perfect i think the empire is crumbling actually and i think people are my prediction is that people are going to move back you know i already have relatives talking about moving back to honduras and and this and that um but yeah it's our wealth it's our value that is built on and you know that's something that we really have to keep in mind and and so um that you know that's kind of my message right is to our people's like really understand value like how is value produced where it comes from because we're constant and that's the role of like the media and propaganda you know the, why do you think you know they have just two channels like univision telemundo that are pumping non-stop ads into our families so it's like not only are they imposing telling us like okay this is how you should look this is how you should dress if you don't look or dress like this you're ugly if you don't do this or that you're worthless you know, and 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 so it's it's a war. Imperialism is a war on many fronts. The main front is economic and political, but it's also ideological. It's also mediatic. It's also the value, what we place value in. I don't give a fuck about, uh, you know, all these uh, whack ass reggaeton artists who are like, you know, coming out with like jewelry and this and that. I'm like, whatever. Like, I I don't idolize them. I I idolize the gorillas who fought for our people. I idolize the revolutionaries. You know, and and it's about liberating ourselves from that colonial imposed mentality of like, you know, everything the U.S. and the West produces is valuable. It's like, no, that shit is art. Not only is it artificial, but it's also based on stolen wealth, resources, everything. It's just commodified and sold back to us. You know, the same way the British imperialists went to India, like everyone associates tea with the British, right? Like a spot of tea. And it's no, it's like that shit's from from India. That's from India. Like tea came from India and China. And they what they did is they stole it, they packaged it, add some labels on it, sold it back. And then now Indians are like, oh wow, aren't don't those British make some good tea? It's like, no, like you can't even fucking grow tea in, in, in England. You know, and it's like the same thing with like Italian coffee. I see all these ads, they're like Italian style coffee. I'm like that shit's from like Guatemala or El Salvador, you know, where the, where there's rich volcanic soil, and uh, right. you know, so it, it's like understanding value, and and that's where I think I would recommend in that sense, like really directing people toward like Lenin, toward Marx, toward understanding the science of Marxism and how us as Marxists, how we understand value and who produces value and who should control that value. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Ramiro. This was such an insightful talk. 
Um, and I'm definitely excited to do more reading on everything you've mentioned. I mean, this is probably going to take months, if not years. Um, but seriously, like, thank you for sharing a lot of this because I think it's something that it's still not very widely understood just generally, but of course in like, you know, Central America kind of mainstream, um, spaces. Um, so thank you for that. For sure. And one last thing I just want to say as well um, is in terms of us specifically as Central American people, I think also we have to, it's our job to build. Um, unfortunately, one thing as 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 an Hondureño, as a Central American that I've seen is that we're too, we're too, um, we're, we're okay with allowing other people to create stuff for us to you know, I want to see more Central American artists out there, musicians, uh, designers, Mm-mm. athletes. And, and there are. And that's not to say, you know, hurry up and, and do stuff. But it's like we have to help each other out and build because, unfortunately, even within Latin America, there are, you know, you can't compare, for example, like, you know, I was, earlier I was talking about Ramon Amaya Amador, right? a hundred novelist outside of Honduras. Unfortunately, he's very little known. Like he's known maybe in like Cuba or in like the Soviet Union before. Um, but, you know, and why is that? Because we don't have a, a publishing industry. We don't have, you know, institutions that promote our artists, promote our writers, promote our whatever. And, and, and it's time for us to do that. And I think that, um, you know, that it's so important to do that because no one's going to do that for us. We need to do that. And 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 if even within the Latin American community, if we want to be recognized and we want to be seen, like we got to do that because, you know, I, I don't think it's right that we um, or try to erase or, or try to follow what other people are doing. We got to do our own thing. I'll say uh, I just want to give a shout out to everyone who likes and follows uh, this podcast and also Anticonquista. Shout out to uh, Ophelia, Rich, Carlos, Nick, who are the other co-editors of Anticonquista. Shout out to all Latinos who are creating revolutionary media and are reclaiming our spaces. And keep doing what you're doing. We're we're doing some really good stuff. Don't forget to check out our website at centralamericanvoices.com where you can subscribe to our mailing list. Also follow us on Instagram at Centan Voices Podcast and on Twitter at Centan Voices Pod for more updates. And don't forget to come back next week to hear our newest episode. Oh,